Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency. Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes, and I am thrilled to introduce my guest today, writer Ross Gay, who will be reading from his new book of essays, Inciting Joy at My Arts in Madison, this coming Thursday, November 3rd at 7 p.m. The first time I heard Ross read his work, I heard a poet behind me say afterward, I feel like I've just witnessed a Walt Whitman. The comparison rings true in many ways. Ross's writing sparkles with a Whitman-esque generosity of spirit that brings in everything and everyone to unveil our interdependence. In Inciting Joy, he reminds us that this is not just a spiritual necessity, it's a practical one. Noticing what we love in common and studying that might help us survive, he writes. It's why I think of joy, which gets us to love, as a practice of survival. To immerse us in this practice, in inciting joy, he takes us on a moving and often hilarious journey through grief, gardens, basketball, classrooms, skateboarding, and much more. In the process, he transforms the everyday into the extraordinary and offers a searing, yet somehow also tender critique of the ways capitalism, white supremacy, and other forms of violence keep us apart from each other and the earth. Ross Gay is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Book of Delights, Essays, as well as four books of acclaimed poetry, including Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award. He's also a founding member uh, a board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard in Bloomington, Indiana, and the co-founder of the Tenderness Project, an online archive of radical empathy. Welcome to A Public Affair, Ross. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us, and thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. We'd love you for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for Ross Gay, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Ross, uh, I'd love to get started today uh, to have you talk about what uh, the seed of this book was. You've said elsewhere you try to write when you write, you're trying to write things that you don't know how to write. What didn't you know how to write when you began inciting joy? What were you learning to think about and express? <laughs> Great question. Um... You know, it, I'm laughing in part because everything I kind of set out to write, I don't know how to write, you know? Um, so for instance, you know, I I had written about basketball, but I hadn't written about it in quite this way or in, you know, in quite this digressive a way or in quite this citational of a way or any number of things. Or I've written about, you know, grief in different ways, but I've never written like a 55 page or however long it is page essay on grief slash masculinity slash, I don't know, whatever else it gets into, you know, football. Um, so, so in a way, yeah, so I guess, yeah, again, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing to hear sometimes, but I don't, I don't really start out writing something unless I don't know how to write it. Otherwise, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I know how to write sentences and I know how to write words and I know how to make the letters, but I, if I'm doing something that's going to be interesting to me, I'm probably not going to quite know how to write it first. So that brought you to, to joy as a, as a glue for this collection of things that you were trying to figure out how to write about. It's structured into 14 chapters, each based on what you call an incitement to joy. What were the real obvious incitements to you? Which ones did you have to dig a little deeper for? And are there some that keep popping up for you now that you'd, you'd love to write about? Yeah, totally. You know, the, the, the essays that sort of were, you know, like the garden, we're both gardeners. Um, and it wasn't a stretch at all to sort of start to meditate on how the garden itself. In fact, it was the first, the first essay that I wrote. It was a different version of the first essay yeah, the first essay that I wrote for this book, I think, 
maybe the second was the gardening essay. It's very different. I don't know if it's anything the same, but because you know that the the garden is a place where so many of the qualities of joy that I find to be, you know, what I find to be the qualities of joy, primarily maybe like an understanding of connection to something bigger than yourself, you know, um, it's obvious, you know, in a garden, if you spend a little time in a garden and you're not like, you know, if you're not like a murderous gardener, you know, if you're not like a, a roundup, you know, <laughs> a roundup gardener, <laughs> um, you know, you know, like you're indebted to the bees and you're indebted to the worms and you're indebted to the beetles and you're indebted to the groundhog who chooses not to eat your flowers that day or your <laughs> whatever that day. Um, but something like skateboarding was something that I had a hunch, um, but I wanted to figure it out. Like I know I had a feeling that this was, that the qualities or some of the practices actually of skateboarding, I often talk about these practices inside of which the sort of fabric of them um, are the kind of workings of what might incite joy. And I, I wouldn't automatically have thought skateboarding. Then, then I started to think about like how skateboarding was always, always in, in various ways, a practice of sharing, you know, like in a kind of an overt way, like, you know, among my friends, when we skated, like, you know, you're always, there's a lot of components. So you're always breaking something on your skateboard. You always need bearings or you always need like a, a wheel or whatever. And everyone has like their bucket of their skateboarding stuff. And you always, you always are giving that stuff away and you're taking it. So there's this kind of automatic, like mutual aid situation going on in skating. But then there's also the thing that skateboarding troubles the idea of uh, public, I'm sorry, troubles the idea of private property. So, you know, like that's why skaters are always being chased by the cops. <laughs> You know, because skaters skate everything. And that's kind of the point. And so, again, it's sort of like one of the things that skateboarding does is it um, it kind of reanimates or something, the idea of the commons, like what might we share together? But I, I wouldn't have, if you asked me that two years ago, skateboarding in the commons, it would have taken me a little while. In fact, it would have taken me this essay to understand it. Yeah. And on and on and on. Yeah. There you go. And there were so many other examples that I'm sure you could sort of say the same thing about, right? Like covers, um, song covers, for example, is an example of the commons in action um, and, and shared creation, co-creation of something, right? Um, that uh, is another brilliant way you sort of unravel these things that don't seem like shared or cooperative endeavors. Yeah. yeah and that feels like some of the lesson of the book for me um the instruction of the book what i learned from the book is is how many how many ways we are built into our lives in ways that we mo we often don't sort of inspect or note are there are there these moments of like really intense um sharing and caretaking and looking out for one another and making each other possible in fact and so that's that's um yeah that's that's one of the you know I think one of the things that's happening in this book. I'm speaking to writer Ross Gay, talking about his new book, Inciting Joy, here on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or you can tweet us at WORT Talk or reach out on Facebook. So you just mentioned these more intense forms of sharing, Ross, and early on in the book, uh, you dive into the death of your father and the second incitement in the book is, is death, which intuitively one might not think is the beginning point for a book about joy. But by the end of the chapter, we're there. We, we get it. You write, what if joy is not only entangled with pain or suffering or sorrow, but is also what emerges from how we care for each other through those things. Mm. So could you tell us a little bit about what emerged from how you and your father cared for each other through mm. his illness. Um, and you end with this beautiful uh, recognition of your father as a garden or the two mm. of us or the all of us as you get up close to his face. And that sort of resonates with, with that mutual caring. Tell us more about that. Yeah. You know, part of the, part of the thing with that um, experience, my father, um, you know, this is the sort of bit nuts and bolts is that he was diagnosed with uh, liver cancer 
say in January or so, and then, then he died in the next five months. He was dead May 10th. <clears throat> and um, I was able to move in with him and, you know, kind of just do what I could and take care and take him to his appointments and um, be around and cook for him when he could eat and um, just be with him in the process actually of what, I don't know that um, we were like explicitly aware that it was the process of his dying, but it was the process of the time. And um, we had like a difficult, you know, not like I don't think a particularly unusually difficult relationship, but we had a we had a pretty, you know, good hard time with one another for a lot of my my life, you know. And um, and there was a way that that this um, my father's illness and my coming to sort of tend to him was it was a kind of you know this 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 there was obviously the sorrow was profound, but there was also this other thing that was kind of emerging from the sorrow, which is that I could be there with him, you know? And it wasn't like, it wasn't like any kind of miracle thing where we were like, oh, now we're besties talking about like, oh, you know, like the difficulties we had. Um, it was like, we were hanging out, you know? We were like watching TV. <laughs> You know, I was driving to the thing and I was trying to get him to eat a little bit on the way home. And maybe he couldn't, maybe he could eat a little bit. Um, but the, but the, but we were really together, really together. And I feel like that's one of those experiences where, you know, and not only were we really together, me and my mother were really together and other family and my brother and, and friends, beloved friends who, um, of course, we needed them and they provided what 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 they could, what we needed. Um, but I feel like it was, like I said, out of a kind of profound sorrow was also profound connection. We, we found profound connection, you know. What's drawn out so, um, so nicely in that piece is the way that the profound connection doesn't necessarily have to be articulated, like you just said. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about um, yeah. healing over every last crack, um, but that being present is this sort of radical uh, yeah. testimony or joy uh, that, that comes out of it that really really came through there. That's right. And I feel like sort of you mentioned the end of the essay and, I feel like one of the one of the things about just being there is that you get to observe who you love in in intense ways, you know. You get to be close, you know. And it wasn't, you know, you can kind of think of it as like it's it's not our vulnerability that I mean it's not our invulnerability that draws us to one another, that makes us close to one another. It's our vulnerability. You know, and so it was my father's vulnerability that made me have to get close to him. Um, and then, you know, in a way, I haven't said this or I didn't say this in the book, but I think it's probably also a kind of model for um, and an understanding that, oh, yeah, being vulnerable is is uh, good for closeness. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll pick that up, pick up on that in a little while when we talk about the classroom and teaching oh, yeah, and yeah, the, okay. the key of, of vulnerability in creating that kind of sense of connection. Yeah. Uh, I want to stick with caregiving for a moment. And, you know, it's often talked about these days as a labor that needs to be more valued as a form of labor, as it should be. But you also urge us to think about it as this opportunity for joyful connection. Uh, what have you learned about how we can cultivate this or at least become more aware of it as a possibility, um, the kind of joyful connection through caregiving? Mm. Well, I, maybe one of the things that I learned is that um, we're always in the midst of it. You know, we're always in the midst of caregiving. We may be the caregivers. We may be the, I mean, we're always recipients of care. Um, but I feel like, I feel like there's a way that maybe we kind of segregate what constitutes care in a certain kind of way. I wonder, I'm just sort of just wondering, um, which might make it seem that there are like discrete arenas of care, um, which then I can imagine could diminish the sort of what is a kind of, um, a, a a potential to be sort of really, really acutely aware of and wanting to contribute to the, an abundance of care. You know, I wonder, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not sure, but it makes when you ask that question, that's what I that's a thing I wonder. The ways that we compartmentalize caregiving professions, for example, or caregiving arenas of our life make make the actual process or act sort of more reductive in a way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like you're a parent or you're a, you know, you're the child of a dying parent or you're a, you know, but we, we, we don't necessarily often think of like the care of um, helping your neighbor take their trash out or the care of reaching something, you know, high in the airplane cabin for someone who can't reach or at the supermarket or, you know, or bringing seeds to the garden for someone, you know, love the thing that you grow, you know, all of these kinds of things that are also care, but they're often, they're kind of like the fabric, like fabricy care in a way. And, but I think um, it feels important to me. One of the projects I think of this book is to try and also the last book, that book of delights, I think is to try to sort of witness how much care is constantly happening, whether it's kind of care that we articulate and understand as care, or whether it's just something that happens between two people who barely even acknowledge each other on the street, you know? Yeah, let's let's dive into some of those other ways that you do that in the book. Um, two examples that strike me are uh, education and growing food that come up yeah, in the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, growing food specifically with other people and other creatures. So you have this beautiful chapter, We Kin, The Garden, The Third Incitement. Um, And you talk uh, in that uh, chapter, in addition to obviously describing the the wonder and joy you get from the plants you're nurturing, you talk about uh, the idea or the criticism that gets brought up sometimes as uh, having that space of a garden as a privilege and you reframe that really thoughtfully for us. Um, That's on page 34 there. Uh, You talk about this notion of uh, gardening as a privilege and and how you respond to that. So let's, if you could read that for us, um, that would be wonderful. The paragraph that starts, uh, it is probably, it's now probably a useful time. Yeah, you got it. It is now probably a useful time to address a question that might be lurking for you, which is something along the lines of, yeah, but isn't gardening a privilege? How could you, how could you be talking about gardens at a time like this? By which you mean the experiences I'm talking about and which I'm saying are connected to joy are not afforded to those who do not have access to a garden, green space, etc. Gardens and joy, the question understands, are privileges. Great point. And one thing I want to be cautious of, by which I really mean refuse, are the ways we sometimes consider, for instance, gardening or healthcare or potable water or health or clean air or adequate and stable housing or decent jobs or good schools or libraries or living relatives or being unabused or having, quote, free time or not being imprisoned or not living near a power plant or an incinerator or a landfill or a million acres of corn or soybeans sprayed with toxins, a privilege, which actually obscures the fact that to be without a garden or to be without green space or to be without access to a park or clean water or the forest or fruit trees or birdsong or shade or a deep and abiding relationship with a tree or to be without healthcare and without health is violence. It is abnormal even if it is the norm. And it is an imposition of precarity that is not natural. All these comorbidities, all these communities more exposed to toxins, all this absence of sick pay or good pay every day is not simply an affliction. Oh, too bad you landed in Cancer Alley. Or, oh, bummer about all those opioid deaths. Or, so unlucky about the lead in your water. But an infliction. It is on purpose and the withholding from some of the means of life of which means there are plenty to go around is a disprivilege, which is to say life, though it is a gift, is not a privilege. That's Ross Gay reading from his book, Inciting Joy Essays here on WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. If you would like to talk to him about Gardening, grief, basketball, pickup basketball, skateboarding, all other forms of joy and many more that he gets to 
in this book, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or you can tweet us at WRT Talk or message us on Facebook. So uh, what's really interesting there, Ross, is uh, you're trying to basically kind of create a new way of talking about what privilege and uh disprivilege is, or I should say, a new way of talking about uh, what the norm should be in society, right? And in this case, with access to green space and gardening. But uh, tell us a little bit about how you arrived at that conclusion or the necessity of reframing things that way. Well, I think one of the things that I noticed is how how frequent that, that term could be um, deployed, the term privilege, not as a way of, to, of considering um, the, br- the brutality that is imposed, the imposition of violence, but as a way to sort of, almost as a way to sort of make it seem natural and, and like there's nothing to do, you know? Privilege to me never seems to be like about action. It seems to be about, it's like a throw in one's hand, not, you know, not always, but like lately, I, you know, a lot, I'll say a lot, you know? And, um, and just, and it's almost as though saying the word privilege is an action. <laughs> That's what it is, maybe. As opposed to like this other thing, like, you know, the saying the word privilege does not have to be like, oh, yeah, that's right. There are all of these things which are actually policy choices. There are all of these things, like the reason someone does not have clean drinking water, it's not because I'm privileged, actually. It's because there are policies, you know, it's because everyone, you know, everyone should have clean drinking water and some people are deprived of it, which is an action. It's not that they are, it's you know, like bad luck. It's like action, you know, same with like you got lead in the ground, so you can't garden, you know, or, you know, you don't have access to, you know, a place to garden or, you know, if you want that or, you know, X, Y and Z, things that constitute um, livable life, say. (laughs) Um, If we imagine those things, the deprivation of those things as being normal. I think we're lost. I think I, I think we're lost. And in a way, I think the brutality has won, actually. The brutality and the brutalizers win. Because you're pointing out we've been complicit in decisions that have been made about this is the way society's going to be organized. But if we started talking more about disprivilege and less about privilege. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying, yeah, then it seems like you have something to actually like, as opposed to being like, yeah, you know, gosh, I wish I'm so privileged. Like there's not, you know, um, you know, bombs raining down on me. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe there shouldn't be bombs raining down on people. You know, yeah. Maybe you know. Maybe you know. Maybe I should be able to turn on my water fountain, my water, and get you know water I can drink and bathe in. Well, there's another example in your book uh, that gives us this beautiful vision of of what uh, an inclusive community looks like around growing things, and that's the orchard, the eighth incitement. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. tell the story of the creation of Bloomington, Indiana's community orchard, which leads to this beautiful realization about the future and rhizomatic care, you call it. Um, Tell us more about this orchard and how it's transformed your sense of care. Yeah, this orchard, it's the Bloomington Community Orchard, and it was sort of founded by someone named Amy Countryman, who's um, someone who was actually doing an undergraduate um, thesis. She was a little older undergraduate student, but she was doing an undergraduate thesis on food security and stuff, and she sort of thought that a useful intervention would be to have um, an urban orchard after some research and thinking about it. And she decided to propose an urban orchard. Her advisor knew that it's a little town. It's actually, it's a little smaller than Madison, but it's got some of the feelings I think of Madison. And so her advisor knew the urban forester, the urban forester said, well, if you can have show support, we'll let you use this acre. And, you know, she had a public meeting a hundred and some people probably showed up. We broke into teams very quickly, got to work. And, you know, eight or nine or 10 months later, there was an orchard and the, and, and it's still there. And it's had, it's like 10 or 11 years, 11, 12 years old now. Um, the, the thing that's so moving to me about that orchard, I mean, there's many things and maybe I'll say three, see if I can do three. One is that, um, it was this experience of working with people who I did not know. I had not met. I don't think any of these people before this, you know, maybe I'd seen a couple people around, but I did not know these people. 
And we all had this idea. Amy sort of offered it, offered this idea and, and her like call was like free fruit for all. And you know, a bunch of people were like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and gathered around this common love, this common love and a common, common sort of speculative love too. Like we all love the idea of free fruit for all. And we all love the idea of like, oh, how do we figure that out together? That as a kind of project is just so moving to me, you know, and that that the project too was was something that we couldn't quite see. We had to sort of gather and collaboratively imagine this thing. And then in the imagining, that was also in acting the, the means for it to come to pass. That was one thing. The other thing that's so moving to me about it is that um, we were profoundly inefficient. We were, we had these meetings that were long and, you know, wandered around and it was real consensusy and it was like everyone, you know, talking and it was like working stuff out and bringing food and taking a long time, like three hour meetings were the norm, you know, and it might be a couple you know, a week and like people had kids, people had stuff to do, people had jobs. So it meant a lot of other people helping out to make this happen. So the inefficiency of it was actually really moving to me, you know, um, I don't know how long-term that could work, but while it worked, it was, you know, these people are some of my dearest friends, you know, in the world. I think because we were, I want to curse, but it's radio. We were so blank and inefficient, you know? <laughs> and then the third thing is that there's something moving about working on a project that is for the benefit of people in the future, because fruit trees are not going to provide fruit right away. You might be one of those people, but you might not. And there were people who, in the process of, you know, working on this orchard, died before the trees were making fruit, you know, and um, some were old and some were young. And that is really moving to me to be to be working on something on behalf of people you do not know. Some of those people might be you and some of those people may not be. It changed my life. It really, really orients an idea about how we might gather, how we, how we might be together. And uh, you can walk in there now, right? Walk in the gate. Yeah, the gate's always open. You can just walk in. It's it's over. Um, it's it's right across from the Y. You'll find it. And <laughs> see some apples right now. Maybe some. Yeah, the apples are probably past, but you'll probably see some stuff hanging around. That you know, we have this tree called a jujube, um, which is they might have some. As a matter of fact, after this conversation, I might run and see if they have some of the trees. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. A couple of things you mentioned there, uh, you said, I think, collaborative, speculative love. I love that phrase. And then the profound inefficiency. Both of those seem to me key terms for the ways that you also think about education. And there's another uh, lovely chapter in this book about education, uh, and it's called um, The Dispatch from the Ruins. Yeah. Yeah. Um and while those of us in higher ed, myself included, uh, might think of it as sort of a, an aspirational place, this <laughs> chapter actually uh, takes that down and give, makes us look hard at what's actually happening there. Um, so we'll talk about this both on the, the micro scale in the classroom and maybe in the big picture in a minute as well. But... I also, like you, have been running sort of an experiment with ungrading since returning to in-person teaching after the right. pandemic. And uh, in your chapter, you write about grades and getting rid of them in your classes is part of an effort to undo our culture's focus on competition. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you talk about that, what inspired it and, and how your classes have been changed by it. Yeah, you know, like the... I think the the thing that first inspired it, like as a question, the writer Fred Moten, um, I heard talking, um, was he actually here on campus talking about teaching and other stuff? But when he was talking about teaching, he mentioned a professor he had, I believe this is right. He had a professor who made me grad school and said, you know, just like everyone gets A's. So now we can get to work. Now you don't have to like worry about actually the really petty thing of impressing your professor. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like such small potatoes, actually, if you can impress your professor. No, if you can do what your professor wants you to do. Not great. Not great. You know, uh, doesn't matter. Um, and I think that giving up the grades sort of um, makes that possible. And it makes it possible the, that 
you might need to do something and be able to do something that your professor can't even imagine. That's the hope, I think. I think that's the hope. So anyway, you know, that's one of the inspirations for sure, the writer Fred Moten. And then, you know, there are other people. Um, Noam Chomsky, you know, talks about, writes about an education elsewhere. You know, I've read enough of him and listened to enough of him that he says such things, you know, like that grading is, is, not, is not a way to sort of encourage learning. And I think it's absolutely the case. I think the thing that grading does, I feel like I see it again and again and again, is it encourages competition, like you said, and it encourages um, obedience and rule following. And it doesn't, and, and learning is, is entirely besides the point. I don't think it's impossible for people to learn with grades, but I don't think, I think the, the use of grades or the presence of grades just makes the possibility of learning as, a, as the first possibility much less likely. That's how I think about it. So in place of that, where has your emphasis gone? And that's where the collaborative speculative love comes in, I think, and the, yeah. the inefficiency. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think my my question is, you know, you know, in a way, it's sort of like it echoes or or like follows the question of this book, which is like when when you're living in various kinds of collapse, you know, what is important? You know, as far as I'm concerned, whether or not can do whether or not someone can do exactly what I tell them to do about a line break or something, like I yeah, I really don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. Um, or if they exactly read the thing that I want to read, you know, I don't care. You know, it'd be awesome if we could all like talk about the same stuff. But it's not, you know, I'm not gonna like, but what I do care, what I really care about is if we know how to care about each other. Like I really, I really am am wondered about and want to sort of figure out how to, you know, if we in class can be like learning how when each other's sick to be like, yo, you okay? What do you need? Or to be like, you know, how do we share this thing we got? Or to be like, how do we collaborate collaborate on this on this project? You know, at this moment we're collaborating on a project, and it feels like to be figuring out how to collaborate and not be like, you know hierarchical and have one person, that'd be me. And I don't want to do that, you know, be like, this is what we're going to do, you know, but kind of be like, Hey, how do you ask questions and how do we kind of like work it out? And, um, but yeah, to be, so ultimately what I'm curious about is care. And, and I'm, and I'm really excited about, I think that I'm also interested in making really beautiful things, you know, making beautiful stuff, um, which to come back to your first question, I believe my my experience leads me to believe that we don't know how to do and we can't be told how to do we can be guided we can be asked we can be supported we can be everything else but you don't like tell someone how to do it you know um i could be wrong about like a zucchini bread or about a a, a foul shot but when it comes to a poem, I think there's some kind of like fundamental unknowing that you have to reckon with to get to the thing or an essay or a relationship, frankly. And in the classroom, it is a, a set of relationships, right? The the yeah. grading and the hierarchy really get in the way of, of that imagination and that vulnerability that we talked about before and uh, risk taking as well. Like, how are you going to create something beautiful without taking a risk? And uh, it's hard yeah. to take a risk, right? When it's you, it. That's you know. it. It's like good. Be and be good. Be good is like the thing, you know. Just be good, and that's so boring. It's just like actually no. Sometimes you gotta be bad, you know. You gotta be bad. You gotta take a risk, you know. Sometimes that's how we save each other. Actually, is being bad, you know. Yeah, and and you put your finger on that in the big sense in that chapter as well, talking about universities and all the bad stuff, the collapse stuff that's wrapped into that, into them. Yeah. Um, could you read for us uh, that section? It's uh, uh, the theft of all this indigenous land, that larger critique on the bottom of 167 down to the bottom of 168. As far as these actual places on the hill, in the ship, still charging after their leader toward the end of the earth, I mean the used vast spoils and ongoing spoiling, the libraries, the basketball courts, these days farms and gardens and arboretums, 
the old books and labs and 3D printers and letterpress shops and greenhouses and movie theaters and notebooks and pens and printers and where I teach a million serviceberry bushes and a pawpaw grove and some of our quite large salaries, the retirements, the endowments, the actual horror by which so many of these places came to be, the theft of all this indigenous land to make all these universities. You get it, right? Irreparable. You get it? The thousand, thousand displacements, you get it, right? The genocides, you get it? The universities built by enslaved people, built of the riches made by stealing people. It's irreparable, you get it, right? The you, literally invested in the end of the earth, irreparable, you get it? And no, not reparable with a scholarship fund or a targeted hire or with a flag declaring that our lives matter or the new Racial Justice Institute, or the new director of the new institute, or the speaker series, or the colloquia, or a first class seat, and a few of us even made first mates on the ship to the end of the earth. Nope, it's irreparable, this. Though the you needs us to believe otherwise, because it is beholden to the makers of the end of the earth, which is upon us. And in the throes as it is, it will do anything to convince us that what in fact ends the earth might repair it even save it, but we aren't beholden to the makers of the end of the earth. And though I don't think the brutality or the sorrow is reparable, it seems the least we can do is something else. For example, being beholden to each other. Yeah, right on. You're listening to Ross Gay reading from Inciting Joy on WRT. 89.9 FM, Madison, here on A Public Affair. We still have some time to hear from you. Give us a call if you'd like to talk to Ross. It's 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out on Twitter or Facebook. That last sentence there, um, or the second to last sentence, and though I don't think the brutality or the sorrow is reparable, it seems the least we can do is something else. Uh, yeah. Really, really stands out to me because like I said earlier you have this searing critique but then you bring it back to this moment of tenderness and the mm -hmm. searching for some kind of connection uh, and that you put that at the center and say well why why join what is bringing down the world anyway yeah. right yeah <clears throat> that's that's it it seems like and it's I think it's difficult not to just do the same thing uh, but I think that question you know, which the people who have loved us and who have um, made our lives possible have asked, you know, they've asked that question. How do we do something different? You know, I also want to say, like, when I'm reading that, I want to, you know, this this whole inquiry, this whole teaching inquiry is deeply indebted to um, this long conversation that comes from this book called The Undercomments by Stefan O'Harney and Fred Moten, who I already mentioned. Um, so it's a long, it's a, that's a long and sort of vibrant um, conversation. So this is, um, that whole conversation is, is a riff and dependent on that. And it's also, I mentioned this, this writer, this um, book, when I'm talking about the ruins, I'm sort of guided by this book called Dispatch from the Ruins by Anna Singh, T-S-I-N-G, and um, which is a book ostensibly about mushrooms and late capitalism. It's, it's a remarkable book. <laughs> I have a question here from Andrew about how you're a different teacher now as you try to put, you know, being beholden to each other at the center of your classes. I love teaching so much. I love it so much. When I was spending all my time grading and generating rubrics by which I could ultimately, it wasn't about rubrics to, um, to inspire or rubrics to you know, cultivate like excitement and, or enthusiasm. There were rubrics by which to evaluate people. And by evaluate people means to judge people, to judge people means to find the ways by which I can knock them down. That's all it was. It was like, how can I like take, how can I figure out how to take points off of them? You know, or in, in the inverse to be like, hey, here's how you can avoid having points taken off. <laughs> yeah. It's miserable. It sucks. I hate it. I hated it. And I was like, you know, the truth is, like, I remember, you know, when I, right before I got tenure, um, which coincides with all this stuff, like, you know, hearing Fred Moten talk and like the other things, you know, getting clear on some stuff, um, getting tenure, like I said, 
I was like, you know what? I think I'm done with this. I don't want to teach anymore. Like if I'm spending all this time trying to figure out how to pull points, thinking of people as like a, as a, as an aggregate of points, like, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't, I don't want to participate in that. So anyway, I, and you know, when you're doing that and you're spending a lot of time looking at the end of the semester, like thinking, oh, can I give them a plus? Is there some way, like, is there some way I can do <laughs> That's miserable work because you're going to be guilty. You're going to be ashamed. You're going to be like angry. You're going to be resentful. You're going to know that they're judging you because they're judging you because you're judging them. So why wouldn't they? <laughs> it's just, and you put it away and you're like, all right, here, here's our task. Let's read stuff together. Let's figure out how to care for one another, you know, and we're all going to have different ways to think about that and do that. And that's awesome. Let's do that. And uh, and let's just make beautiful stuff and let's figure out what that is. And it's not going to be my beauty and your beauty might not be the same. Probably have some overlap, but it might be this might not be the same. So let's see if we even learn how to like support each other, coach each other up, be with each other in the process of discovering what those things might be. You know, it's just I mean. I mean, when I say I love it, I just love it so much. I love it so much. Thank you, Ross uh, Gay, here on A Public Affair, WRT Madison 89.9 FM. We have a few minutes, Ross, to uh, explore some of the many, many other places you take us in this book, so many places we could go. I would love to have you think a little bit about um, politics uh, in this season. Obviously, not politics primarily in the electoral sense. That's not what I'm thinking about. But it is, of course, um, something on people's minds right now. And you have this lovely passage in your introduction where you write, My hunch is that joy is an ember for or precursor to wild and transgressive and unboundaried solidarity and that that solidarity might incite joy, and that my hunch is that joy emerging from our common sorrow might draw us together. And this made me think about historical examples of that kind of unbridled solidarity, and I'm sure we could brainstorm a bunch. But I'm interested in the political function of joy Mm -hmm. coming out of this quote, not in a utilitarian sense about how to get votes or anything like that, but in the sense of creating a common sense of purpose that galvanizes action for the common good. It's a really big question, but where do you see that happening in this country today and and how do we incite more of it? I'll, I'll throw you the the kind of big big visionary poet question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not sure, but I mean, um a book that matters a lot to this book too is um um Rebecca Solnit's book Paradise Built in Hell. Um and the you know, where the evidence, the evidence is again and again that like, you know, uh, when there's an earthquake, we like figure out, you know, like, you know, set up the stations, you know, get the, get the housing going, get the soup kitchens, you know, and then, and then when the officials come in, it gets worse. Then, then people get arrested, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's just about like that, you know, and and I'm sure I'm sure there are examples to the contrary, <laughs> but I have I have little faith. Um, I have I, I'll put it like this: be more explicit. I have no faith, no faith that the institutions, any of them, have the capacity to do for us what we have the capacity to do for one another. Um, and which is to say, I have tr- profound faith in, in each other. And, and I think there are all of these ways um, that um, I think there's a there's, I think there's a real utility to speak of utilitarianism. There's a real utility to making it seem that that's impossible, that that could not be the case. You know, that my neighbor who votes different than me could never care for me. You know, they actually want me to die. <laughs> um, the evidence to the contrary is all around us, you know, every day. You know, so I would I would, you know, I. I could, you know, we could just drive around and be like, oh, yeah, look, that, you know, that person just took that person in, you know, oh, look, that person just gave that person a ride. Oh, yeah, look, that person just, you know, um, did this or that, you know, it's the evidence is, is all around us. But I think, again, like one of the what feels important about this book is that or what this book is attempting to do is to study the ways that that happens 
because I think, like I said, and I think at, at this long moment, it feels like there is a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of incentive and, um, cash to be made by making, um, by making enemies, by making us enemies when in fact we're neighbors, you know, you know, in fact, we're neighbors. The, your example of the orchard is a great example of that, right? You said one of the best things about it was I just went into this group of people who I, I didn't know at all totally. and look what, what came out of it. Totally. Um, we just have a few minutes left here, Ross. Um, this builds on that political question, uh, but I think also underlying the whole book is this notion of uh, struggle as a hopeful thing and that joy can be, despite the struggles that are involved in cultivating it, the sorrows that it comes out of, as, as you say, um, it seems to have uh, uh, an engine of hope, basically, for us. I'm interested in having you talk about uh, the relationship between joy and struggle and hope. And obviously there are so many traditions we could look at uh, yeah. in this country and elsewhere that show that so well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've talked about epigenetic joy as well. Joy mm -hmm. is an inheritance. I think all those things are related. So I'll just throw that out to you there. Yeah, yeah. I love that question. And, and there's a way that... <clears throat> Like the word hope, I got to work on this, think this out. Like there's a way a kind of um, compelled hope, um, a kind of politicized hope, in fact, <laughs> speaking of this era, this moment, <laughs> it can feel to me like, oh, you're you're selling hope as a way of saying, um, just just do it. Just do what we say. We may not we may not do we may not do anything, but, you know, in, in other words, there's a kind of compulsion to hope that sometimes feels like a lie. And, and I'm worried about that. I'm wary of that. Um, but I want to also be wary of making that kind of compulsion to hope um, interfere with my, what I actually believe in. It was a kind of hope, <laughs> which is to say, like, I part of what's beautiful about planting trees is that they imply a future. You know, they imply a kind of understanding that someone else is going to this might this might be a way to care for someone else. You know, especially if you like if you plant any kind of fruit tree or if you plant any kind of tree, like a big tree, it's like a lot of big trees aren't going to be their biggest for, you know, 100 years. And the shade that that might cast and the care that that might provide for someone else is really to me, it's a kind of expression of hope, you know. Um, so I. um the third question you said you said joy, hope, and struggle, and, and struggle. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. where the inheritance of the epigenetic joy I think comes in. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder. It's it's a beautiful question. I feel like one of the um, like the actions that incite joy. You know, I think this the kind of gathering and the kind of caring for one another and the kind of um, being together in these ways um, itself, if it's struggle, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's, even if it is in struggle, you know, maybe often, especially if it's in the struggle. Um, but I, but I don't mean, and I also want to, all these things is a great question because it's complicated, you know, like there's a very important book by Chris Hedges called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. And we need to be acutely aware of that. We need to be acutely aware of that. And so like struggle um, happens, you know, struggle happens. And I'm not talking, but I'm not talking about war, you know, I'm, I'm talking about love. You know, I think I'm talking about love. And I feel like that sort of gathering together that is motivated by love, that is motivated by what we love in common, um, that itself is a kind of, um, it, it is joy. I think it can often be joy making, you know, like it was a struggle to make this orchard. It was a struggle because we had to really like figure out, do we keep the gates open all the time? Do we put a lock on the gate? And though that sounds like a kind of small question, it's a kind of profoundly, it's a microcosmic question that is that is really macrocosmic actually, you know? Do we, do we, can we keep a lock off? Let's like get rid of the lock, you know? That was a question, it was a struggle. 
um, I feel profoundly close to those people on account of that struggle, which was not only a struggle of putting trees in the ground, but it was also the struggle of being like, how are we going to imagine this world for these people that we're planting these trees for, actually, who we don't know? <laughs> There's your hope. There's your hope. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. The the moving into the future in that unknowing. Um, Seamus Heaney has the poem, St. Kevin and the Blackbird. I, I, I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but he says, to labor and not seek reward is the whole heart mm. of it, right? To just That's keep it. keep laboring. That's yeah. it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. It's like the being together is the thing. Exactly. Well, you got that beautifully, and I think this is a good place for us to end in the, the end of Insurgent Hoop, Pick Up Basketball, the ninth oh, incitement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... Could we close out with you reading the last three paragraphs of that chapter, please? Yes, absolutely. All birds sing, but maybe early birds the loudest, or it seems that way anyway, especially when the early birds are mostly black across from the fancy condos, down the street from Whole Foods, soon to be the Amazon, playing a game whose song is loud and brash and consoling and flaunting and flouncy and tender and laughter-filled and profoundly unsingular, endlessly emergent, schools in the kingdom, practicing for an elsewhere we are in the midst of by practicing it, practicing the elsewhere we imagine. Pick up basketball is an elsewhere, I'm saying, whose logics, by which I really mean practices, grown up with and by Black people, though not exclusively, don't misunderstand me, refuse ownership in the owners, refuse settling in the settler, refuse the very conditions by which we became Black or white or whatever in the first place, because those conditions are the end of our time here on Earth. Which raucous birdsong mustn't disturb the dreams of those who think they can own the world, for even their dreams must be guarded against trespass, maybe their dreams especially, and as such must be dealt with swiftly and to the fullest extent, which means on a court, in a school of elsewhere, in the kingdom of joy, they had to take the basketball rims down, which means once again, we would have to find each other elsewhere. Meet you there. That's Ross Gay reading from Inciting Joy, his new book of essays. Ross will be reading at My Arts in downtown Madison this coming Thursday, the 3rd at 7 p.m. as part of the Wisconsin Book Festival. Hmm. Ross, uh, I look forward to seeing you there. It has been a great pleasure sharing this hour with you. Thank you so much for joining me here on A Public Affair. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you. I appreciate it. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Shali. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison BookBeat. With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it